Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Brace yourselves for part two of our No Time to Die debate. Something you someone mentioned earlier on about um, Q being really good at the end. I thought Q was brilliant in this film. Yes, uh, yes. yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know about you guys, but the, the screening I was at, the cinema erupted with laughter when Bond walks into M's office and uh, Q <laughs> says, "Oh, Bond, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been?" And yeah, shut up, yeah. Q. I know, I know he's staying with you. But that was really funny. <laughs> and, uh, Very um, Simon Pegg, isn't it? The Mission Impossible, that kind of sort of banter and Joe J. Well, well. Oh, not a fan of... <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I think Ben Watcher is a, a fantastic actor and uh, mm. I wouldn't be opposed to him coming back. But, I mean, when we, talk, we talked earlier about fans being confused about stuff, did anyone really give a huge shit when Judy Dench came back in Casino Royale? It was just, well, she's good, <laughs> just bring her back. <laughs> <Not really. laughs> well, yeah, my, again, like you said before, you technical brain is like, oh, hang on, that's not right. You know, like hearing the Honor Majesty's own, that's right. And then, oh, I love that song. Oh, actually, so I'd like to hear it now. I mean, I don't. I think that's a little rubbish, but the Judy Dench one is, she's your trump card, isn't she? She really, you know, she's been incredible in the, the Brosnan films. And we need a bit of continuity. We need something. David Arnold and Judy Dench were that continuity, weren't they? I agree. I'm I'm glad she carried over, even though I don't I don't understand how they can justify it other than she's a big name actress. Because when when she was she got the role in ninety five, I've I've bored people with this before, but she wasn't particularly well known other than for her stage work and as time goes by, which is unbelievable if anyone hasn't seen it. She wasn't really a film actress and in that ninety five onwards she just became massive, you know, won an Oscar and became one of the biggest actresses in the planet. They couldn't sort of just sort of bin her off, I don't think, and they thought she's integral to this franchise. And I'm glad I'm glad they did it. And it's it's something that I don't have a, pro- a massive problem with. But could Ben Wishaw come think, back then? Well, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think. I think he has said, to be fair, that he, as far as he's aware, that's it now for him. I would have liked him to come back if Bond didn't die and it was a different actor. I would have mm. had them all back. But um, Ray Fiennes, I would have liked him, but he's ruined the whole world. You know, he's killed Bond or whatever. Can't have him back. 
Money Penny again. I thought this. I know people complain she's not in it much, but when's Money Penny been in oh, the Bond films much? She's like a single scene character, but because you've got a bigger actress who, well, people seem to have forgotten about her now because of you know the other actresses in the film. But she's quite a big actress to be playing such a small part historically. Yeah. There's that pressure to do the Avengers, you know, get them all involved, which is fine. It's a different dynamic, and that's that's good for that area. You know, like you've you've got the Brosnan area where you've got these intermingling allies in things. You know, you've got Michael Kitchen, um, Colin Salmon, and then you've got Jack Wade. I know I'm in, interspersing character and actor names. And <laughs> Zukowski. But that's fine because they're, they're used. They're not used. All oh, right, we'll get him back for every film. We'll get him back for every film. No, we'll just get them when we need them back and if they service the plot. And I think, I'm not saying by any chance I'm going on here, Q should have been in Live and Let Die. That, that's, a, that's a disgrace. Stephen, I would have loved to all of them to continue if Bond hadn't died and hadn't had a kid and done all that. I would have had them all back. But no, I think we've got to start all over again without explaining why they're there. That's how I'd do it. I think you could get away with Naomi Harris continuing, uh, uh, personally. I, I thought she settled into the role of Moneypenny so well by the end of this film. I think it's because she was what Moneypenny is, which is a secretary for, the, for M, and she does that really well. I'd love Q to continue, but I do think that because he outshined everyone with his emotional performance at the end, I will always remember Ben Wishaw for that for being devastated. I was the first one to call for Ray Fiennes to continue. I, I, I loved him as M. Personally, I didn't like the direction they took in this film, and I think that if you look at it rationally and you take a step back, Bond sacrificed his life for him. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I, I don't think you can have Money Penny as well because you know there's that did they didn't they stuff in Skyfall. Well, so there is guy that. and oh he's back again. I like don't for Penelope Smallbone. Oh, oh, her only film role apparently. Sadly, <laughs> I I really I was watching. I said this before. Sorry to derail things, but I was watching this the other day, and I really hated that moment when. He comes in and he gives Money Penny one rose and gives them all a small one. I was just thinking, <laughs> you still a dick move, you know? It really is. <laughs> this woman you've been like, worked with all these years and she's been yeah. pining for you and you know she's always there for you and she's crying. <laughs> and then this new bit of totty comes in and it's just here one rose for the old hag and then uh, come on, Roger, it's you're funny, better than that. It? <laughs> it's outrageous, baby. It's brilliant. <laughs> Oh. It's one of the funniest scenes. Oh, it's brilliant. We we had a. It's a, sorry. This is a complete tangent, but there was a guy in our class called Woodcock, and it always just reminded me of like he, he needed to be he needed to be a female, and he needed to be a James Bond like Penelope Smallbone's assistant, <laughs> <laughs> Smallbone and Woodcock. <laughs> in terms of Safin, we didn't talk about him as much in in the one of the other debates because we were going on about everything else, but. Oh, in fact, to link it with Madeline, her most emotional scenes were with Safin, weren't they? The character. Obviously, it was a different actress playing playing uh, Madeline when she was a, a child. But that was the real emotion in her character as much as with, da- you know, a couple of scenes when Daniel Craig appeared in the sunset in Norway and a little bit on the, you know, on the just putting you in the train and holding your belly or whatever. But can, can someone... Does understand exactly where Safin fits into this whole film and chronologically and why he made the choices he did. 
I told I don't know whether you what you picked up. I don't think anybody really understands because it just the thing that gets me is the pivot from let's go kill Spectre to okay, let's kill you know innumerable people. I just, I just didn't I didn't buy that. Like a few weeks ago, possibly a few months ago, I made a like a tier list of sort of the, the Bond villains by how much I like their scheme. And a lot of people got very sort of, you know, aerated by it. They're like, why is Scaramanga a shit tier? I was like, well, no, he's a brilliant actor in a brilliant part. But my God, if you can tell me what on earth his scheme is in that film, because it flip-flops <laughs> between scenes between I want the Solex and I want to kill James Bond indiscriminately between what the scene is. And it makes no sense. And the, the, the real sort of comparison I draw with Safin is Stromberg in the spiral of me. I feel they're kind of much of a muchness in that it's a good actor in a good playing a good villain, but my God, their scheme is, I just don't buy it. Like what? Like Stromberg wants people to live under the sea. Cause apparently that sounds like a fun thing to do. Like I feel Stromberg was done much better with Drax. And a lot of people say, Oh, they're the same thing with the same plan. And I mean, they're not really because Stromberg wants people to live under the sea. Cause he thinks things have become decadent whatever that means, whereas Drax is clearly like a borderline Nazi who's got some sort of racial mm. beauty thing going on. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think that is f- quite clear in the film, that he's got some sort of real sort of real racial purity thing or, or at least genetic purity thing going on. Um, whereas with Safin, I just don't... Unless I miss something in the times I saw it, I really do not understand why he pivots from, from Spectre to everybody. And that's the real issue I have with him, is just his plan is not... I don't buy it, really couple of things about that. So when there was the Spectre party in Cuba, and this might just be the way my brain works, the first thing I thought is, well, they're all there together. Who's answering the phones at Spectre HQ? Is it like, is it like a deserted Wernham hog? There's just no one there. Um, so that was the that was the first thing about that. Um, in terms of Safin's motivations, uh, coming out of the screening, one of the first things that we talked about and one of the first things that jumped to my mind is, I wouldn't be surprised if we learn in, in years that he was Dr. No and that scenes were cut and clipped because they maybe had a line of dialogue where he was referred to as as Dr. No or or one or the other. Because when you stop and look at it, there's the scene where he's walking along the tunnels and he's with the child and then only hardcore fans will get this, but there's the big circle above his head, which is just like the big circle in, in Dr. No. The guys in the suits when they're in the, the kind of war mm. and all the pipes and and it's on an island, and there was just too much there, and the rumours about it being Dr. No, to me there was too much smoke for there to be no fire, and I'm not saying he definitely was Dr. No, I'm just saying that I really wonder if he was No, and then they got wind that fans hated it, and then they cut out like little bits of dialogue and little snippets, and those snippets maybe explained his plan a bit better, because his plan was and motivations were so vague that I didn't know why he wanted to destroy the world and kill people. I, I, I don't know why he came back at the end. I, I thought he wanted Madeline and the kid, but then he lets the kid go. So I reckon that there was more explanation somewhere and it just got snipped. Mm. And that might be because he was no. I'm not saying he definitely was no, but I wonder. Did anyone else wonder? They, they straight up call him doctor at one point. Mm, yes, they do. Um, which I'm, I agree with you entirely. I'm convinced he was supposed to be Doctor No at one point, and they cut around it as much as they could. And either through not noticing or thought it would mind left that in there because he's never referred to his doctor at any other point. He's not like doctor. Like when did this guy go to university? Maybe he's got a PhD. I don't know. 
I, I, but it's just kind of out of nowhere. Like, why is he now being called Doctor in one line in one scene in the last like fifteen minutes of the film? It's really weird. Like, I'm, I'm convinced. I've, I've seen a theory batted around, which I'm not sure how much I buy into. Where with, uh, admittedly, Rami, Rami Malek hasn't got any Chinese heritage. I'm not sure if they would have played into that. People are saying with Jotano being a Chinese villain, at least literary in the in the book and kind of in the in the first film. Maybe that combined with worldwide virus, people thought was maybe playing into the the Trump side of things a bit too much. They didn't want to go, you know, they're worried about the optics of, of having a Chinese villain with a virus. Like, that's not the right thing to do. I'm not sure how much I buy that. I generally think if they cut it out, it was probably because they saw how many people were like, yeah, let's not make of Dr. No, please, because we've already done that with Blofeld. We didn't like it very much. If he was Dr. No, speculating, would that have changed what happens? Because I think what I struggle with really is, is that you're supposed to buy that Safin is the one who's destroyed the whole of Spectre. So he's like the super superpower. Whereas obviously mm-hmm. Dr. No is traditionally a Spectre agent. So if it he was Dr. No, would he have actually just been carrying out Spectre's orders and the plan would have just been Spectre, which personally I would have far preferred because I think that one of the things that this, this film does badly, but it's not just this film, it's just the whole of it, is, is how they've made a mistake with Spectre, is that they've spent so long trying to get it and then they've, they, they've backed themselves into a corner with Spectre and what they did with the film to the point where they've decided, well, we're just going to have to kill them off. But, we'll, but, but what I struggle with with that is, is that we're supposed to believe that, you know, Safin's organization is outpower Spectre, but we don't know what this organization is. It comes across as quite um, an Amish community, actually, on the island, especially when, you know, you the people walking around holding, putting the portraits on there. I mean, that's obviously very Doctor No in, in the way that, you know, in that. And, and I just wonder if he was Doctor No, would it have actually been a different story? I think, just thinking about this now, I really think this is very likely. I think you're right, Stephen, that fans wouldn't have bought it. I mean, I don't, I don't know why. Fans, are, they won't buy that, but they'll love James Bond dying. But um, that seems a bit more controversial to me. Take away the Cuba stuff with Blofeld coming and going and the one scene in the prison. Like I say, Christoph Waltz came in later to film some scenes. It could have just been done that way. Like, this was originally part of Blofeld's wider scheme Maybe he was in it or not. It doesn't matter because it's Spectre still going. <laughs> that would have made more sense, wouldn't it? It would have been a Spectre-like world domination scheme, an evil scheme. But then I suppose that theory might run aground because why is Safin linked to Madeline then? If he's Doctor No, that's another link, isn't it? It's an absolute mess, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know sort of my, my pre-film theory was that he was some sort of Spectre agent who got betrayed in the way that Spectre agents are want to do has happened before, you know, so if they've transgressed the organization somewhere, they've tried to kill him, and that was why he was trying to kill Mr. White and his daughter and things before, and it was because he was an ex-Spectre agent and so he would have been tied in the Spectre in some way, and so I was a little surprised they didn't even remotely, he was just some guy who apparently got the resources to have this island and all these minions and things, and again, it's just to me, as you say, it's such a Spectre plot, I don't know why they didn't go, go down that road other than, I guess, like you say, just script revisions where I think they've 
seem to have had about 20 different ideas that all been took them a blend over X amount of years and with Danny Boyle dropping out and other, the other people coming in and things. As he's, it's probably a miracle that's as coherent as it is. Actually, mm. now, now I yeah. think about it. But yeah, mm. I think you're definitely onto something. I would be very surprised, as you say, if in the next few years we don't get something about Spectre or Doctor No or something behind the scenes that changed at some point that would have been possibly was even filmed and it was cut. Like I say about that Doctor line, may even have been filmed and it was cut along the line or reshot or ADR or something. You know, I, I don't know. As if you start with the f- blank pages that, right, Daniel will only come back if Bond dies, right? So we start there, and then how do we work back? Well, if he's going to die, this whole continuity can go. We can kill everyone. We can kill Felix. We can give him a daughter. We can kill mm. Blofeld. It doesn't matter because we're going to start again. So I think there is there is something in that as well. Definitely seemed a little bit of sort of everyone's got to die so if go down the list and they oh, I've killed Felix, killed Blofeld, killed but you know, I think it was a little bit of by road. Like the one again, as I say, the one that, that really um stuck out to me was Felix. I felt that was really unnecessary, I guess. And I I kind of feel Jeffrey Wright's been hard done by anyway with the way the character's been used, because I think mm. he was he was a very good actor and gave a very good performance in, in Casino Royale and Quantum, actually. And um, by his own admission, he's, he's confused as to why he didn't come out in the other two films. And I think you know, just throwing him off so indiscriminately the way they did, I don't know, because I didn't really get any like emotional beat from it. I was like, oh, go, oh, feel. I was, I was, I was, I was, I got emotion from it because I was like, even though I knew it was going to be the last time with Craig, from, I was like, okay, you've killed Felix off. That seems unfair based on the way the guy's been treated in the previous films. Not like, oh, now Felix is dead. Oh, I'm sad for Felix. It was like, I don't know. It, that was a bit of a weird one. Like I, I wasn't sure how much I enjoyed that, really. Mm. I think they should have ended in Florence or wherever it is with Michael Caine sitting in a little coffee yeah. shop and he yeah. looks over and it's Felix with Sharky and they've got little fishing ties. <laughs> <around him>. Sounds good. <laughs> I want to tell you a story about a man named Sharky. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did, I really I, I kind of want to say something else positive so I, I did like Hans Zimmer's score there, there weren't too many uh, quite like the, the first half of the gun barrel and I've already said I liked Back back to MI6 and Final mm-hmm. Ascent or, or is it Ascent or is it Final Ascent? Ascent Ascent yeah I think <laughs> it's, it's wonderful I, I know you guys are not a fan of having Louis Armstrong at the end of the film and I'm, and I'm not either I think that's on a majesty mm-hmm. song we should have just left it there but personally I, my favourite moment in the film and maybe in the last five or six Bond films was in the song Matera where it's just this little 30 seconds of majesty, it's just, I was in the cinema and my heart just like melted, I just thought that's, I know it's I know it's Lazenby's theme and it's the love theme for him and Tracy but you know it was like 30 seconds or whatever and I'm just a Barry whore so uh, for, I could I could put my logic aside for that moment and just, oh man I'd listen to that to the extent my wife said, will you please stop playing that? I've heard this so many times yeah, yeah. in the film. Yeah. I also didn't mind the little bit of music when Bond and M were by the river and it was just a little bit of in the background because it was just subtle. I don't think that was... I think these things are okay if they're if there's a little bit of subtlety to them and they're not in your face like we have all the time in the world. Just Because that bit of music in the background when they're on the... the, the I don't know if it's the Thames or wherever they are, but... I don't think most people would have noticed that. Yeah. Like I, when it was playing, I was almost like, "Is it? Is that? Have they? Yeah, 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 yeah that is there." So, 
what I'm trying to say is I don't mind this stuff when it's brief and subtle and I'm looking at three blank expressions so I'm probably well, going to no, be I, this. I, 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 totally agree. I thought you were totally saying that the, the first half of the material track of the original Zimmer was beautiful Stunning. I'd rather just play that I, I understand it's, it's emotionally manipulative we're all we're going to hear Barry and gorgeous music in a cinema incredible sound of course you can't, what else can you do apart from get shivers I understand that when you have that line we have all the time in the world and we play we play the theme at the start alright he's going to die alright <laughs> that's that's what's going to happen now because they've they've done it as a sort of serving you up and reversing the line back as if it's the woman talking about Bond or whatever I never certainly never thought that when I heard the music I just thought that's the music that you associate with Bond getting married and having a great love. That's why I, when I heard it, that's the first thing that came into my mind is, well, the last time we heard that music, he was completely in love and he got married and it was taken away from him. And I thought he was going to die when they were talking about the virus. I think when they were in Q's, was it Q's apartment? And Q had about 15 laptops out and he was saying, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, if you, can, if you touch someone, the virus can spread. The minute Q said that, I thought, yeah, he's gone. Oh, yeah, and luckily, yeah. Brofelt was a step Brofelt, so... Uh, my, Although it doesn't matter because it can pass from anyone apparently now. So if it's I really, it to the genes or something, Doctor yeah, Who right. stuff. I don't know. I I hated that stuff. I, I really don't want to decry what you're saying, Stephen, because if you like that piece of music, absolutely fair play. You know that that that's great. It's a wonderful piece of music. I think this track Matera is stunning in its own right. That's my thing. Is that I I think it's stunning in its own right. And to put my personal view on the we have all the time in the world is that you have to earn that piece of music. Bond has been completely in love twice in the series, Tracy and Vesper, and both of those have their own piece of music. They both had motifs of them being with Bond and one was to Louis Armstrong and the other one was the Vesper theme. To me, I found it quite emotionally manipulative. Personally, I'm not, you know, because I, I actually, second time especially, I adore the vast majority of this uh, pre-title sequence. I, I think I think the mass stuff is very, very good. And I actually really love the uh, the car chase as well. Uh, I think it's a brilliant car chase, but it will be tarred by that one line where he says, we have all the time in the world, and they play that tune because I've had Spectre where I've not been convinced of this relationship. And it seems almost like a, a desperate plea in a way to go, you will like these people. Because we're going to put them, you, we're going to put them on the same musical level as George Lazenby and Diana Rigg fifty years ago, and so if they'd have just done it at the end, I think not like they did, but there I would have bought it more. But I think that I found it hard because they played it so at the beginning, and actually because the music material is so beautiful without that anyway, they could have used that bit of material as the Madeline and Bond's uh, theme and played that throughout it. And then we'd be, in 30 years' time, the next thing, would be going, oh, that's the Matera theme. That's when Bond and Madeline are going. So I just feel, I don't feel it was earned, but that's just my personal opinion, and I don't want to take away. And I have to be honest, I have listened back to the soundtrack, and I love it when it's there in the middle of the soundtrack, when I'm not watching the film. When I've got it on in my car, it's brilliant like that. It's, it's a brilliant piece of music. I'm never going to say otherwise to that. John, would you have preferred it if they'd have used the real Bond and Madeline Love theme, the writings on the wall? The writings on the wall. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I also think that their individual, the 
we've said this before. I mean, this is my thing with the music is that I think it's a bit of a myth that Barry used loads and loads of 007 theme tune. I think what Barry was the absolute master of was creating everything. well, I, absolute everything. <laughs> but he created a he created a whole soundtrack for each individual film. So you can hear a bit of a score and go, "Ah, oh, that's Octopussy," straight away, and and that's how good he was. He was the king of melody that he could do that, and because of that, then he only put in the Bond shoot theme once or twice in the films. You think of Majesties; it only has the Bond theme at the start when Lazenby's driving as his introduction, and at the end at Pitts Gloria when he's sled sledging down shooting the machine gun. The rest of it is his own soundtrack and bond and barry was the master at doing that and actually people like george martin were superb at that as well he that is some soundtrack when you listen back. Really is. and i think that somewhere along the line these new composers have missed the point that they think it's all about we'll add that we'll, we'll add diverse bits of the bonds theme whenever we can and I don't think that that is the reason why I personally have loved the music of Barry. I think it's because he's made his melodies and then fit the Bond theme at certain points. And the bits that I liked the most of Zimmer's track were actually the bits where he put in the No Time to Die theme, which kind of highlight to me the point is that if he'd have made his own track of the No Time to Die themes and then put Bond bits here and there in it, I think we'd have had an even better soundtrack. But that's just a personal opinion. You're you're totally right about the Bond theme. You it's you cannot use it too much because the Bond theme is strangely reassuring. The minute the Bond theme kicks in on a film, you know he's going to be fine. That's why I would never use a Bond theme in the final battle because yeah, you hear it. It just removes it. Almost removes any tension. Like it's fine in Octopussy when he's when Roger Moore's driving along train tracks because you're not really thinking he's going to die at that point. Or with Moonraker when he falls out of the plane. As a kid, I remember. Moore just sort of plummeting through the air thinking, oh my God, James Bond's going to die. And then <laughs> the Barry music kicks in and you're like, oh no, he's going to be fine. Really, Douglas, that podcast, keep uh, moving going. Keep the strong going. Y'all keep the strong going. Here's a question for you. What is the maximum amount of times you should hear it in the film? I asked a couple of friends about this and for me, I think I would never have had have one film, the, the Bond theme in a film, more than three times. I'd have a big, a big sort of triumphant one at one point, and maybe a couple of subtle ones when he's maybe checking into a hotel or like when Dalton lands yeah. in the Rock of Gibraltar and he's, you know, looking at the the cut tag and all that. And it's just very slow. And yeah, to use it a lot is just it less is more. I think. Hmm. I just don't think we have enough variety of the Bond theme though anymore. Hmm. It's all the big bombastic version of it. There's never a subtle, like you said, the sneaky type. I've not, I've not heard that. I might be wrong, but I can't remember hearing that for a while. Although there's not been much espionage going on as of recently. This this might be a specialist question for me. I've actually, <laughs> actually got a YouTube video of every use of the Bond film. Oh. Every, every, With stats. Um, stats, exactly. <laughs> uh, sorted. Um, I think if, if you guess, like, for example, how many times do you think the Bond theme is used in License to Kill? That's the one that sticks out to me. Well, there's probably more than average, is it? There's slightly. <laughs> is it? Is it more? So yeah, I, I counted um, about fifty-four separate uses of the Bond theme in *License to Kill*. Compare that with *Moonraker* and *A View to a Kill*, where you've got seven. It's slightly above what John Barry's usage of it is. <laughs> um, 
Again, you've got sort of to one of the dice, that's 50 plus. Down of the day is 50 plus. Casino Royale and Cup of Solace, people say it never shows up. It's, it's 20 times. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in there a lot. No, there's no, um, so there's not the full bubble. It's not noticeable. It's not like the full, like if you're going to like the full sort of the full or yeah, that's a lot less. But I mean, the, the actual melody or, or, or some aspect of of the Bond theme is, is used, I think, more than people realize. But I would totally agree that John Barry was apparently, <laughs> apparently it's because he begrudged giving Monty Norman the right, you know, like any sort of <laughs> credit or royalties for, mm. for using it. So he, he would do something else. But in a way, you would you would think maybe. Maybe it benefited from that because he had to come with different things, and so you've got like the flight in the space thing from Moonraker. You've got the Honor Majesty's Secret Service theme, which is I, I I actually agree with 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 both of you on the usage of of uh, of the, the music in No Time to Die because I I as a fan and sort of a, as a lover of that theme and Barry's music, I love that use of it in in the pre-tell sequence. However, I would agree that it does feel a little cheap and unearned like you say that they're using it because they know the people who people who don't recognize it will be oh that's a nice bit of music people who do recognize it will say oh that's the theme from on oh, secret service and so they will get the emotional beat from that rather than from anything the film has actually done it's just drawing another film um however my weird sort of <laughs> my weird bond score like die on a hill thing is that i i have said for years they should have or at least john Murray should have kept using that theme as in the main theme from On Imagine's Secret Service as a, like an action theme in later films because it's so good. Like the 007 theme, like to me, the theme of, of that film isn't the On Imagine's Secret Service theme. It's We Have All the Time in the World. That's the theme of that film. Same as like Dr. No's theme isn't the James Bond theme. That's the title theme, but it's not the theme of the film. That's the James Bond theme. I think you could have used that in other films. And I liked hearing it in uh, No Time to Die. And I wish they'd use it Again, like as, as an action theme because it's so good and it's like it gets you like it's a hook like the Bond theme. You're like, oh yeah, now I'm, I can get it. It's it's a good variation instead of using the Bond theme all the time. Yeah, let's use that. Let's use the 007 theme in some modern variation. You know, um, you mean like they did with the yeah, yeah. I just I did. I would love to hear it, man. I don't know how you would do it. Like I mean, I know David Arnold leaned into the. The, the Bond is back sort of do-do-do-do-do from, from Rush With Love, the very start of it, Into My Never Dies. He, he used that. I think that was another one which I liked hearing. And I think used sparingly these sort of older motifs you can you can bring back and people, like, you get this sort of, oh, they're a good bit of music. People who don't recognise it will be like, oh, yeah, that's great. I love it. People who do will say, oh, that's I love that in this other film. So it is a cheap card to play. I I do, I do agree with you. I think with the way of all time in the world is a bit. It's so emotionally charged in that film, and I'm not even the biggest fan of of, of that film. Like I I like it, but I don't rank it as like the best. Like a lot of people do, and I wonder whether, in a way, I've, I've, it's weird. I've seen people who love that film more okay with that music being used. I think than I am, who is less attached to that film. But again, I suppose it differs. I suppose it differs. I think a lot of people have different opinions on it. The ski chase music wasn't used as an action piece, was it? It was used for some random talking scene, albeit slowed down. That, it was weird. That was that was the thing. Like it was, I liked hearing it, and I, I think it worked. But in that context, you're like, well, what? Why is it being used? What is what is the what is the um, sort of the emotion you're trying to 
draw from this because as far as I remember, it was just Bond and M kind of talking. He wasn't he wasn't back on Imagine Secret Service. If they used it in the office when he first turned up again, yeah, yeah, yeah. thematic use of that. But it just it just kind of like, oh yeah, let's use the Majesty's theme because it's a good recognizable piece of music. If they use it as an action theme, or if they'd used it in something that relates more to the original sort of use of it in 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 the '69 film, I would have maybe appreciated it more. I mean, I love the recording of it. I love that as a piece of music. I think it works really well. And I wish they'd maybe used it in a more fitting scene, if you know what I mean. As I say, like the way he first arrives back at MI6 might have been a better way to go about it. But I don't know. That's just, I think a lot of people just like, yeah. Yeah, like hearing it. If you think, think though on Diamond, sorry, <clears throat> the, the next film after On Most is hmm. within the pre-tile sequence, he's got a new incredible action theme that he's already right i'm doing it again but there's just there's not i don't think there's anyone good enough to do that it seems i mean like, the beauty um, would kill the action theme in that oh that, 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 that leans into the majesty scenes but i've heard that people say it, which is absolutely isn't um but it, it, it leans into it. it definitely it definitely recalls the 100 percent majesty's theme i've heard that, that before I'm trying to think the, the snow the snow is it snow job yeah. snow job golden gate fight yeah. yeah, yeah, very, very much. It's a twist on the on the notes of. Uh, yeah, I just did. I've always seen it more as a Max Doran theme because they use bits of yeah. it in sort of the bit where he's killing, trying to kill Bond by drowning him, and sort of when he's meaning the horse thing, they use sort of notes from that um, that they then mix into the the action theme. Like, like John John Barry. I, I, it seems weird saying this because. A lot of people say he's like the best. I don't think he gets enough credit sometimes for how well he he sort of melded different bits together to get a sort of coherent. And I'm not even the biggest fan of his his sort of the stuff he did in the eighties. I think I think his peak was sort of the mid sixties to the late seventies. And I think his eighties stuff isn't quite as good though. Still, that's just based on based on how good he was before. It's still phenomenal. But like I, I prefer this like, the, the slightly earlier Barry stuff. But even like I say, even the octopusy stuff and a view to a kill and, and living daylight is so good when you stop and like break it down in the way that he, he did these things. And in the, like I mean, living daylight, it, it, it's got like as you say, it's got like three themes. It's all based around either the title theme or the pretender songs, and it's just all so catchy and so recognizable. And I'd love. Like, I mean, David Arnold was so good at that. He was so good at that. He did that in Casino Royale. And I think it kind of, it's fell by the wayside a bit um, the last 10 years, the sort of using sub-themes and the title theme as a, as a sub-theme and the motif and that sort of thing. And I really want that to come back. It's such a defining aspect of a Bond theme, yeah. Bond soundtrack to me, to have these different, different sub-themes. I think in I think general, uh, one of the reasons I feel that that stuff has, gone down a bit is is that and it is a generalization because tom you know far more about composers than i do but i'd say zimmer is probably the most popular composer and his kind of staple in general is atmospheric music so i think it's very in vogue to create atmospheric cinematic music rather than melodies tom i'm going to let you speak because you will probably no i i do agree with that i'd agree that zimmer is now mainly he sort of become more the art of music, and I want to create sounds and art. It's almost sound design. It's also so yeah. linked to that that it's yeah. become a character in itself. Whereas 
you look back at his early stuff, the melodies are absolutely beautiful. You know, they're as good as anyone's, including Barry. So you take things like, <laughs> you'll laugh at things like this, but The Holiday, the film The Holiday. Great film. There's, there's about three or four lovely, beautiful melodies in that. He can do it. You know, if he was given the, the job of a Bond proper composer from the start, he could have come up with a beautiful love theme. Quite, And he did, you know, the first bit of the material stuff, just more of that, please. And then, you know, Last Samurai, I mean, it's just that's possibly my favourite ever score. I mean, it's just incredible. Mm. You, you can do the action incredibly. Even in the Batman scores, the earlier ones, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of lovely... Okay, James Newton Howard did, I think, more of that. Mm. Yeah. But I did notice, I think it's as they were coming to the island, it did get a bit... It sounded a bit like the sort of Catwoman theme from Dark Knight Rises. And we had the, like I say now, the Bond theme is mainly like, Dun, 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 dun. It's more sort of like that thing. It's not the subtle. We always say oh, one of our favourite uses in Diamonds Are Forever when he's got the jacket over the shoulder. Yeah. Really slow, and that's what we need a bit more of, personally. Things like that are what I'm saying. Like John Barry was so good at melding things because that bit you've said that I also really love. It's probably one of my favourites because it not only uses the Bond theme, it uses the Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. Flawlessly and it's it's brilliant. I'd love something like that to come yeah. back because there's no reason why they can't. It's just, as you say, I think I think film scoring in general is 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 changed from that sort of John Williams Wagnerian yeah. based thing where every character has got to have a motif and every action sequence has got to have a motif and etc. etc. Yeah. to sort of just make music that work and I think I, I can't like argue against it morally because I mean I guess they're both equally good and they're both hmm. not my my, yeah. pref- my preference I prefer having motifs and themes for each character and, and, and sort of theme in the film um, like it's like more like a Star Wars or a Lord of the Rings sort yeah. of score, or a John Barry Bond score rather than a Hans Zimmer one which admittedly has you know Batman his Batman his Dark Knight score has the Batman theme in it, well a Batman theme in it but which is recognisable but it's not like I, I mean it's it's got the sub themes but they're not like hooks they don't they don't have like no. a hook to them if you know what I mean and I, I that's again it's my sort of personal preference to sort of wanting to see that sort of thing yeah. it's such a bond thing that I associate from all the way from Doctor No through to I guess Quantum is when it died out because that one doesn't really have a Dominic Green theme and it doesn't really use the title sequence much at all I've only spotted it once but Casino Royale definitely did and I'd love that to come yeah out. yeah and it had softer themes as well. I mean, it, yeah. it had the lovely, the lovely music. I do agree with Stephen, though. I think the Final Ascent track, mm. it was good because it it didn't use the Bond theme in a situation yeah. where that would distract you. It, yes, it was very zero. It was very, like I said, it, it's very The Da Vinci Code, which, again, is another incredible score. <laughs> Whatever you think about the film, the music's incredible. And it built and built and built. And I was thinking, if you, Stephen, I don't know whether you'd heard that before you saw the film, you must have been thinking, good grief. However, I know Chris said that, you know, because he heard the soundtrack before he saw the film. So you must be thinking, right, well, something massive is going to happen. He didn't know it was in the correct order, though, so I don't think he knew where that was in the film. He didn't know that was, like, the last track. But I think it it does the heavier lifting. Okay, the, Craig's acting is good and Madeline's acting is good, but the Zimmer score really pulls it all together and mm. makes you emotionally feel that moment. And that's why I think it just about works as a as a piece of cinema, even if you don't agree with the plot and just the you know, the actual idea of killing Bond as a scene of somebody on the phone 
pretty harrowing cue, brilliant, you know, the acting, I think, and that music, it, it sold it and it worked for what it was, I think. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that before the film because, um, do you remember the, the soundtrack for The Phantom Menace when it was released oh. and one of, the, one of the titles was called The Death of Qui-Gon Jinn? Oh, no. <laughs> What a trap, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd never listened to soundtracks before films nowadays, and um, but I did listen. To, I'd listened to Matera a few days before because I just cracked. I was so hyped, and I thought, I thought after all these years, it's just about here. I'll just treat myself to this little song. I almost regret it now because I listened to the song, the track, so many times in the days leading up to the film. I would have got more out of it sitting in the cinema and experiencing it as, as part of the film. So generally I try and stay away from listening to soundtracks beforehand because mm. I like to experience them as part of the film, as part of the scene. Like yeah, I want yeah. to I want to associate them with you know when I hear Yeah. <laughs> I wanna think that was a terrible rendition of it, but it's no, John's Coronation Street. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, when I hear that, I want to think of Q in a hot air balloon or, or whatever. Yeah. So I, I try and wait till I've seen the film. And I don't know if that's maybe a good thing or a bad thing, because sometimes it takes me three or four viewings to to take in a soundtrack sometimes, unless there is something quite obvious about it. I've watched films before and not even noticed the soundtrack. And then when I've watched them two or three years later, I thought, my God, that score is great. Why did I not get that? Yeah, first? yeah, that does happen. Yeah, but definitely one of the positives for me is the is the soundtrack and I, I totally get what you're saying about the way the music's changed and it definitely has I don't have any issue with uh, the decision to hire someone like Hans Zimmer though because I mean he is a great musician and he is a huge musician and if and if you're in you know Barbara and Michael's position and Hans Zimmer who is apparently one of Barbara's friends you know why not why not get someone who's hugely talented along and see and see what he can do you've got to try these people out I mean cards on the table if it was up to me I would have been I would have brought David Arnold back and I hope yeah. David Arnold comes back from the next one but John Barry never scored every every Bond film and sometimes it's nice to get a bit of variety and, and then it maybe even works in their favour because they've missed a couple of films and then who's to say if, if David Arnold had continued and done Skyfall Inspector he might have just been burned out by that point and then oh, I'm not yeah. doing this anymore but the fact that he's missed all these years and he still is part of the Bond circuit you know he's Kermode interviewed him recently he still talks about Bond and so who's to say that when Bond 26 rolls around he might be in the position now where he's thinking, you know what, I've been away for a few years, I've got some ideas and I'm ready to come back with something fresh and it might be, that would be something that in general would unite Bond fans and everyone, I think pretty much everyone would be on board with Arnold coming back, surely. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point, Mike, actually, because um, when I was editing that video together months ago and I listened through to all of the sort of the, um, the John, obviously I, I, the way I did it was having to listen to films over and over and over again. It was such a, it was a, it was a chore in some ways, but it was kind of like a passion project. So it was really interesting to find out. And I knew nobody else would care than me, but it was so interesting to hear those John Barry scores for the Connery films and the Lazenby film. And then the Martin score for Live and Let Die is so different. And actually to me is far closer to what a modern Bond score is in the way it uses the Bond theme and uses other themes and the way it integrates them. And it's sort of John Barry had just one particular way of doing it until then. And then when he came back, to me, leaned more into the, into the Live and Let Die score. He obviously took something from that. And I think there's definitely something to be said for having different voices and sort of different composers in rather than just the same guy. Though I would completely agree, I want David Arnold back for at least another film because the one that I always think is a bit of a shame that he didn't do with Skyfall 
because I don't feel like a massive hypocrite for saying this because I've just complained about the use of, <laughs> or at least said that I, I don't think some of it's earned the use of other, like old themes. Like that was like the 50th anniversary Bond film, and he obviously clearly knows his stuff. I would have been very interested to see whether he would have integrated some older sort of references in the score to older themes as part of the anniversary thing. Whereas Thomas Dune was coming as kind of a, a newcomer, and I like a lot of his score. I think a lot of it's really good. And he gets a bit of a bashing for using some of it, Inspector. I know, even though John Barry did the same thing sometimes, so people just kind of overlook. But <laughs> I, I still like this guy. I still like it. It's not one of the strongest, certainly. It gives something new. It gives some, a different sound to it that I think Hans Zimmer leaned into and Steve Mazzaro leaned into for the No Time to Die thing. That was, to me, uh, sort of sound-wise and aesthetically, a, a merger between the, the Newman scores for the latter two Craig films and the Arnold scores for the first two. It, it, it kind of merged the two. And that's why I think it worked quite well in ways. Really 007 is part of the Pod Dojo Network. I don't know, where where are we with the film at the moment? It's what, how, a month on nearly, isn't it? Mm. Where does it sit with you? I don't mean necessarily in terms of rankings, but you can say that obviously if you want, but... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What are your overall roller coaster sort of emotions? <laughs> like, I, I should couch everything I say by saying that when I do, like, Bond rankings, I love every film because sometimes yeah, yeah. People say, oh, this one is, like, you know, 24th. Yeah. You must hate it. And, like, I don't. I'll watch it whenever it's on TV. I'll watch Absolutely. it casually. I love that feeling. I love all of them for whatever reason. But it's quite, No Time to Die is currently quite low ranked because, like I say, the highs are, are high, but the lows are so low of, of stuff that I just don't like for whatever reason. And it's one of those where I'm so downbeat about the ending, I can't mm. see it rising for me. And I, that's a shame. Because like um, quantum is one where I never, I was never as down on it as I know a lot of people were. Even though I'm not a big fan of, uh, as you said, sort of the the editing and the way it's directed. But that has still risen a bit recently for me. Like I, I, I'm 
it's it's it seems really almost sacrilegious to say it, but I think it's kind of my second favorite Craig film behind Casino Royale. But and then I don't really dislike any of the Craig films. I don't like, again, I don't dislike any Bond films, but I don't dislike any of them. But if I had to, if 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 you had to make me choose, I would say probably that Casino Royale Quantum sort of duology is my favorite because they're so tied and it just works really well. And I would have loved to have seen what would have happened with a bit more of a, like a gestation and, and more work on the script and things. But I suppose, yeah, like overall, No Time to Die. It's like I, I, really, I, really, I went into it really wanting to like it. I think that's the thing that annoys me the most. I wasn't the person by any means going to this being, I hate Daniel Craig, I hate his era. Quite the opposite. I loved Spectre. I was one of the few people who really liked Spectre. And I went into it thinking, I really just want a satisfying, a fun James Bond film because the world is so shit and depressing at the minute. Yeah, I just want yeah. escapism. And I got it for like half of it and half of it I was like, to quote Daniel Craig, one to slip my wrist. Like he, he, he put that, he firmly put that sort of view onto me. And I was like, okay, fine. But again, technically brilliant film, very well directed, great score, great performances. And I think it all just falls down on the script and sort of choices that were made, which is unfortunate. But that's kind of my overall thing. I do want to sort of give a, a total ranking because I want to see it again in home, it, it, myself a few more times before I firmly mm. put it in place. But yeah, that's it's kind of low end, I would say, but still a good, still a brilliant film. I can't say that's not a good film. When you first see it, because you so there's so many massive things happening as a as a new film, it's a lot to take in. So seeing it again, at least you're aware the second time of these decisions that have been made. I think it'll be good as well when it comes out on home video or whatever, you know, on Blu-ray, just to sit down in in the comfort of your own home and you can pause it. Mm. It doesn't have to be quite as intense. You can take it in. Uh, I think that might be a little bit more relaxing and yeah. not as intense an experience. So that might help it as well. Firstly, what I'll say is, is that, and I don't think I've emphasised enough, that there's a lot of things I really like about it. For the time it is, it flies by. It does not feel like a nearly three-hour film. Carrie Fukunaga does a very good job on the direction of a lot of the scenes. I think there's some great secondary characters. Paloma, brilliant. Cube, superb. I, 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 I like Rami Malek's performance. I'm not sure that Sapin's a well-written character, but again, I think Rami Malek does as well as he could do with that performance. I agree, Madeline Grant. Is that what she's called? No, Ma- Madeline Grant. Madeline Swan. <laughs> Madeline Grant. She, yes, no, no. Madeline Grant. Madeline Swan. <laughs> Ma- I agree, Madeline Swan is better in this film. Some of the action scenes are great. There's lots to like about it. And if this uh, film took the action things and just made it a bit safer, what some people would say, I'm going to say that would be the bolder thing because I think that actually a standalone Bond film is what Daniel Craig's era needed. Skyfall really should be Daniel Craig's last film because it's talking about him, is he is he relevant anymore? That would have been an amazing fifth film. If you'd have taken some of these aspects, it'd been brilliant, but they didn't. They went the complete other way. They, they made more melodrama than you get in a week of Hollyoaks. You got you got <laughs> you got Felix dying, you got Blofeld dying, you got Bond having a kid, and then you got Bond dying. And like I love my two favourite films are Licence to Kill and, and and Majesties. They they are both ones that mess with the formula. Don't get me wrong, I'm not someone who's like, you must stick to the formula. But the difference is is that they mess with the formula in what is a, but they're surrounded by stable films that 
So it, it adds more effect to what's being yeah. done. And because Craig hasn't had a stable film, this doesn't really have very much effect. It's just a bit eye-rolling because I'm like, well, I'm expecting this because how do you outdo the last one where your arch nemesis has become your brother? But ultimately, what I struggle with with this film, and this is what I've come down to, the primary focus of this film for me is not being a James Bond film but being a send-off to Daniel Craig. And I think that that is the main issue. Because when you go to that and you are trying to sell a plot to get somebody back for it, you are making massive compromises and no actors bigger than the character of James Bond. And the decisions that have been made in this time, regardless if you like them or not, they've happened now. They're irreversible. And that will affect the timeline in years to come. And it's a shame because it's a really enjoyable film in times. Unfortunately, and I hate to say this, I place a lot of this at Barbara Broccoli's door. I think she is far too emotionally involved in Dan- with Daniel in Daniel Craig. It's, saying stuff now like I can't even imagine Bond without him. Well, well, no, but Bond has been here before, and Bond will continue. And I know he's been a good Bond, and I know he's been he's been your first choice. But you've also got to realise the boundaries between you are a producer and what is best for the franchise. And begging someone to come back who didn't want to come and making compromises in that way have made massive decisions that will affect the film forever. This franchise will never be the same since. And for that, if you put the, if you gave me until they got to the island, I would have said this film would have come about seventeen, eighteen. You know, I'd have, I'd have, I think it's, I think it's quite a fun film because of those choices. It can never go higher, in my opinion, than twenty three out of the twenty five. That's me personally, because ultimately, what this film will be remembered for is that James Bond died. And it doesn't feel like James Bond dies. It feels like it's a goodbye to Daniel Craig. And I struggle with that. But that's me. And is John the 24th, is that down of the day or is it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's Spectre and then Quantum of Solace. So you did at least it improved then from the last two? No, I, I, Trying I, to help you. No, I, yeah. I find it really frustrating because when I watched it the second time, I was actually really enjoying it so much. And I don't know, it was it you, Stephen, who said, that in the first half, you can tell Phoebe Waller-Bridge is all over it because mm. I think the script is brilliant. I think there's some cracking bits of dialogue. And I'm really, I'm, I'm like, I can't, I'm really enjoying this. What was the problem I had the first time? And then it came to the end and I realised exactly what the problem was. <laughs> but that's just me. And I'm sorry if I'm a traditionalist and I, I'm just rigid and I need to learn to be more open. But that's just me. <laughs> Something you've mentioned there makes me think that credits in films should go back to the way they were in the twenties, where the guy who wrote the dialogue was the script and the guy who wrote the actual plot was the scenario. Because you say the script was good, and I would agree the dialogue was good. However <laughs> That's what I mean. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. I, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean, and I agree with you. It's just like to me, I want to know who was responsible. Not like in a sort of film under the bus kind of way. I just, I would like to know who was responsible for what in this film. 
because I honestly don't no. know because it, it it seems to went through so many hands. Like who was who decided to kill Bond off? Who decided on these weird plot beats? Who wrote the good dialogue? Who wrote the bad dialogue? It's interesting, but everything all we got is like script by like six different people, and it's just I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think what you've just said there is kind of very close to how I feel about a lot of it. It's it's if again if I had to totally rank it, I would probably put it. I'd put it bottom now, but that's just because it's so long <laughs> that I don't want to rewatch it, and it's it's the bit I don't like. But again, I, I just I don't want to. When I say it's bottom, people are like, oh well, it, you must hate it. And I don't hate it. No, I don't hate it because I love every Bond film. I I still really like really love a lot of elements of this. It's just like I don't have any desire to rewatch it, and to me, that's like the main crux of it. It's like, do I want to rewatch? If this was an ITV or ITV four, would I put it on? At the minute, no. Maybe in a few years I would, but at the moment, no, I wouldn't because I don't want to sit through three and a half hours of it just to get depressed at the end again. After the first viewing, I had it 20, 23rd. So there was, yeah, it was third, but after the first time I watched it, I had it, I had it, there was two films below it. And I don't know if I was eager to go back and see it again. I, f- I felt like I was so frustrated with a lot of it that I just wanted to give it some sort of time to, to simmer and... Then when I went back, I had a great time with it second time round. That's not to say that I discounted all the things that are wrong with it that we've talked about. The second time, I just, I don't want to say I just rolled with it because that then suggests that people who didn't enjoy it again can't roll with it and they should roll with it. I'm not saying that. I just think when I went back the second time, maybe because my expectations were so low that I went with it a bit more. And I think compared to you guys, I don't have any issue with killing Bond, so that wasn't an issue for me at all. I still had all the same problems, and the more I think about them, I still have various problems with logic and plot beats and lines of dialogue and things that don't make sense and things that just... It's easy to say from the outside, well, why didn't they just do that? That would have been so much easier. It's, it's really easy for us to sit here and do that. And I don't really want to blame Purvis and Wade because years and years ago, I interviewed a, a screenwriter, and he, he told me something that's, that's stuck with me all these years, and he said, listen... You should never, ever, in a review or when you're talking about a film, you should never, ever say that this blame the screenwriters or credit the screenwriters because when a script is written, by the time it gets to the cinema screen that you're watching, you don't know who said what. You don't know who's written what. You don't know what's been changed. Most of the time, these things change a hundred times. And by the sounds of it, according to Michael G. Wilson, it changed a lot from the original script. I wonder, I think... Whoever said it earlier that there was too many cooks involved, but we're absolutely right. That's for me the next Bond film. What they should, one of the things they should absolutely definitely do is get someone in with a vision and just stick with that vision and let's let one person or a couple of people just make a solid story. This had far too much on its plate. Where is it now? It's probably low, low to mid table for me now because the more I think about it, the more I'm trying to focus on the stuff I liked about it and the more that I think about the previous Bond films is I don't know if I'm a, if I, I don't know if I'm objective towards a lot of the Bond films because I grew up with them and I've seen them so many times mm. that when I watch stuff like uh, Moonraker and Octopussy and A View to Kill films that I genuinely love in my soul when I watch them now and I see something on the screen I think you know like I love A View to Kill I know you guys love A View to Kill but that robot at the end is absolutely dreadful and so I think to myself, is it right that I can 
mm. wax lyrical about how amazing a view to a kill is when part of my brain says, what the hell is that robot that should not be in the same film as Max Zorin gunning down an entire mind full of people? Right on schedule. So <laughs> the more I think about No Time to Die, the more I'm trying to, I'm just trying to think. It gave me a buzz in about three or four scenes. Hmm. Um, I liked the soundtrack. I liked Craig's performance. I liked a lot of the dialogue. I laughed probably about four or five times. And something that we haven't really talked about, for me, it's probably in my top five pre-title sequences. I, When the pre-title sequence finished and I had to run off to the toilet because my bladder is smaller <laughs> yeah. than the sheep's eyeballs that Kamal Khan eats, um, I was, at that point, I was on cloud nine. I was just thinking, oh, do you know what? This could potentially be better than Skyfall. This is, what a start. I'm so happy with this. Um, and I think the first time I didn't like it because it starts off so well for me and then just kind of went gradually downhill. So the more I think about it and the more I ramble to you guys, I don't know how I'm going to come out of it the next time. Mm. I, I could well watch it the next time and all the stuff that grated the first time could come back and it could grate again. The fact that I'm not desperate to watch it again, that maybe tells me something. Because with Casino, I was desperate to go back. I, I could have watched that seven times in the cinema. With Skyfall, I really was on a high and I wanted to see that time and time again. I watched Quantum of Solace last week and I think it's the most frustrating film in the series because if someone said to me tomorrow, right, here's a genie, he's going to give you one Bond wish, what would be your Bond wish? I would say get John Glenn to re-edit the action scenes in that film. And I wonder if it'd be one of my favourite Bond films because I love <laughs> so much about that film. But every time the action starts, I just switch off because I think, oh, here we go. Just flying all the place. But the stuff in No Time to... The, sorry, the stuff in Quantum of Solace, the highs are higher for me than the highs in No Time to Die. I don't know if my placement at the moment is accurate because, see, with Bond films, I think it takes years for you to digest and put something mm. where it is. So who knows? We could we could do a retrospective in four years and we could all be a bit different. At, at the moment, I'm not desperate to revisit it. That sometimes happens, though, with really emotional films, doesn't it? You wouldn't want to watch On a Majesty's every every day. You know, I, I wouldn't want to watch that now. I've saw it fairly recently. I don't want to really watch it for another year, maybe. So it hmm. it means more when I do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd class it with that because I don't think there's as many highs, there's not as many classic elements to it. Stephen, was there a, you know, being a film critic, was there sort of like a, not a pressure to sort of review it well, but given the fact that, hang on, British cinema, all the cinemas are relying on this, Mm -hmm. there's a heck of a lot of goodwill towards this film. It's a momentous Bond film. You know, it's got a royal premiere. Everybody's out in force at the cinemas again. Mm. People are being swept up. Imagine if all mainstream media at all absolutely slated it. It'd be a massive backlash against the media, I think, even by people who hadn't seen it, wouldn't it? I think that definitely played a part in it. Um, the fact that it was like the kind of first big film, not post-pandemic, but you know what I mean, the first kind of cinema's back, the first kind of big film in that way. It maybe was well-timed in that respect. I think a bigger part of it was the premiere, though. Um, a lot of people who went to the premiere seemed to enjoy it because when you go to a Bond premiere and you know, you've seen Daniel Craig over there in his pink tux and, oh, there's Barbara trying to snog him behind the bars... You know, when you when you go and experience <laughs> something like that, it's, it's, you must be it must be impossible to not get swept up in it. The fact that the distributors told us we weren't getting a press screen in Scotland, maybe that's why I didn't like it the first time because I was just angry at them. To answer your question, I, I don't really know. I think reviews always go in a cycle, don't they? 
when all the reviews early doors are very very positive you then wait a few yeah. days and then the negative ones start coming in and, mm. and vice versa <sighs> i don't know it's to be honest when i when i read i don't really tend to read a lot of reviews nowadays because i think the best film critic in the world is is always yourself i don't mean me i mean everyone yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because you know what you like you have your own experiences and just because someone gives it five stars it, that means absolutely nothing to you for me the job of a film critic is to try and give someone an idea if they will like it some people say you you're supposed to tell them if it's good or not that's pretentious bullshit as far as i'm concerned because your idea of good is completely different from someone else's idea of good so you just want to give someone a good idea of whether they'll enjoy it if it'll be their sort of film that said this film is fucking impossible to do that with because how can you tell someone if they're going to like it because without mm. saying by the way, Bond's got a kid, Blofeld dies, Bond dies, Felix dies. What do you think about that? This film was a nightmare to review on, on radio. Yeah, yeah. You had to dance around everything, talk around everything, and, and trying to review it without being spoilerish. <laughs> how can you? How can you effectively review something like this without talking about the big, the big important stuff? I would almost say a, a non-spoiler review of this film is almost pointless in some ways. Yeah. Mm. We were going to do one. We were going to do a non-spoiler outside the cinema, but then... Emotions come out, and it's like, well, what is the point? There is no point. If you just talking on a technical level, what? Who cares about that? You know, as Bond fans and as cinema fans, I think Harry said it recently that you don't watch a Bond film for the cinematography. You, you know, you you do okay. You can say the action. You can say whether you like the action because that is one of the main things you watch it for. But there's too much going on, like you say. And I, I'd just like to know as well, Stephen, in that that sort of gap between you having seen the premiere mm-hmm. and other Bond fans not having seen it, were you thinking like, hey, this is... I think you said something like, oh, this is going to be really divisive, mm-hmm. which, of course, is true. Mm. But were you thinking like, I genuinely think this could... You know, like the Dying of the Day, I always remember a friend Jack, he, he'd he seen it in the press screening and he'd said, I won't tell you whether what I thought. I'll either say, I'll say I either loved it or hated it. <laughs> So then when I watched it, the first half, I was like, I think he might love it. And then by the end, he, he hated it. <laughs> but the, was there that sense of, heck, I think people are going to be really angry at this film or oh, I think yeah. it's going to be seen as a masterpiece? Or... Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I've got two answers for that. And the first one is <laughs> quite, quite a funny story. So you're all familiar with um, the completely bland, non-controversial figure that is the Wizard of Ice. So... so <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> He would not talk to me about this film. He saw it a day before me. Um, paid about £6,000 for that privilege, but we won't go into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. He would not like answer any questions about this for it. He would not. He wouldn't tell me if, if he liked it. He wouldn't tell me if it was good or bad, which, and I think that's to his credit, he didn't want me to, to spoil any sort of detail of it because he said, if I say anything, you know me, you'll know what to make of it, which, which is cool. So I really dig that. And then I'm sitting down at the screening and it was... Um, the only way I can describe it is in the, the Edinburgh IMAX, there is a seat right up the back and you're you're not near anyone. So you're completely on your own. And that's my favourite seat. I always get that seat. So I had my phone sitting just there on this little like ledge thing. It was sort of 15 to 20 minutes into the film and I just pinged up Wizard. <laughs> his, plan, his plan had been, he didn't want to spoil it, but he was going to message me knowing I was in the film so that he could rant. And 
he thought I can't spoil it for him because he's in the film and he'll be watching it and he won't be checking his phone. And I wasn't checking my phone, but it was sitting like here and it was like wizard and then it was being bring I was like, what the fuck's going on? And it just kept going for about ten minutes. Oh we hated it then. Cool. Um wow. so that was that was funny. Um your what was your question again about watching it and then <laughs> well, the, sorry, the devices thing. Yeah. The minute it finished, I thought yeah, people are going to hate this. I think this is going to be this is going to be the film that divides opinion more than anything else. And uh, I've said this a few times. I would prefer a film like this than to one where everyone just comes in and goes, "That was alright, yeah, it was fine." Because no, those films just get forgotten about and tossed aside, and then a week later, no one cares. Uh, this film, love it or hate it, has got people talking, and it's it's not bland, it's not met, it's not one that we will forget. It's a film that sticks with us for good or bad, and it's got. It has got people talking about Bond again, which is a good thing. And yeah, the, the minute the credits, even before the credits rolled, I just thought, yeah, this is, people are going to hate this. I, I don't know if anyone's going to love this because I don't know who it was. I don't think it was specifically aimed at one set of fans. Like mm-hmm. Casino Royale is sort of for the Fleming fans and then Skyfall's kind of more for movie Bond fans. Those are generalizations, but you, you know what I'm talking about. And this film seemed to sit awkwardly in the middle and it made some really big decisions that I just thought there's no way some people are going to accept this. Definitely not now, maybe not ever. So yeah, that was, I stood outside for a while and I was thinking, how the hell can I tweet about this film? Like, what can I say yeah, yeah. about this film other than, other than it's going to divide opinion? That was the thing I settled on. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only thing you can say for sure about this film that we all agree on is that it's, mm. it's a divisive, but it's the most divisive Bond film, surely. Yeah. Action. This is John Glenn. You're listening to Really <laughs> 007 Podcast. Tom, do you think if they'd changed the ending and Bond had, uh, you know, survived and then sort of went off with his family at the end, where on earth do you think we'd be? Do you think most people would actually be saying, yeah, yeah, this is one of the best Bond films? Or That's a really interesting question um, because I've seen many films at the cinema and I've never quite, other than that, maybe when I was at one of the star, I went to the midnight screenings of the um, the Star Wars sequels. And other than that, I'm not sure of a time I've been in a cinema where I've quite gauged the barometer of the audience around me as much as in this film. The one that the markers that really stood out to me were when Matilda first shows up, and you get the line about you know, "Oh, wish is not yours," and there was this. There was this like sort of relief from everybody. You could you could sense the laugh, like, oh yeah, oh god, it's not it's not they're going this way, they're not going this way, it's not Bond's kid, don't worry. It's not really predictable. And then it turned out that it was, and you could just feel you could feel the mood kind of sink. And it was like okay, because it, it's like it, it, it's it's so weird. Like I've never I've never been in a situation because obviously everybody went to that. I went to a special screen, like I say, and they were quite there were Bond fans because you had to you had to pay. It wasn't much extra, but you had to go. It, you paid extra, and you got all your drinks comped, and it was great. You got free martinis, and I really loved the experience overall. It was brilliant, and it was clearly everybody who was there a Bond fan because otherwise, why would you go to a special Bond screening if you weren't already a Bond fan? So there was that sort of caveat, but but you could feel like everybody was kind of going along on the roller coaster of this film, and and there were when it got to the end, like. Like I, I, I don't think anybody was was like you know gonna stand up and applaud when he died. Like it was, mm. it was, it was 
it was so downbeat. The whole feeling was so downbeat. And part of me wonders, like, I mean, it's such a sort of hack job way of doing it, but maybe, you know, if if he, if he you'd somehow fudged it that he got off the island and you ended the film with him driving off, you take Matilda out of the film entirely. He, 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 he drives off with Madeline at the end, like at the start, and he says, we have all the time in the world. And that's how he ended. I know you kind of did that with Spectre, but... I don't know, like the way I, I bet that they were going to end it was was like the Only Ever Twice novel where you get some form of amnesia escaping the base, even though that seems hackneyed. But I thought maybe that's the way they would go into. Like he, he doesn't remember the stuff that he did, but he's still he's still James Bond. And they're going to kill him off, kind of like how the Dark Knight did, metaphorically rather than literally. And it's like, would people enjoy that more? I mean, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say because... I, I, I feel, again, it's so anecdotal, but I feel from the screening I was in that people really didn't buy the ending. Like, people I was talking to when we are leaving, the general tone of people sort of shuffling out, we were all kind of, you know, oh, well, that happened, you know? Like, I mean, what were we expecting that? Or, you know, even if we were expecting it, it wasn't what we wanted. Yeah, I just, it's one of those things I'd really love to see the alternate universe where they made a very similar film, but just didn't do it. They went a different way at the end. And where, as you, I can't remember who said it, but it's it's the thought that I've had from the start of this, where I've seen a lot of people say, this is a bold film. And I fundamentally disagree. Mm. I think the bolder thing would have been actually, weirdly, to, to do a different thing, because this was what I expected. Because yeah, this, is, yeah. this is Rogue One. This is Iron Man in Avengers Endgame. This is... Yeah. The, the rises. This has happened. This is. This seems to be the trend for sort of movie heroes now to kill them off at the end of the the run they have, and it's just so predictable almost. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> that's a very long, long winded, rambling way of saying I don't know, but I kind of get the feeling that maybe if they'd went either literally letting him off, him ride off into the sunset again, even though they've already done it or if they'd had some sort of more abstract way of ending the character or killing him off or having him retire rather than literally having him kill off, maybe people would have been more receptive to it. I've got a feeling that that maybe would have went down better because I think, weirdly, you'd think Bond fans would have more pushback against this. Again, it's totally like door, but I think I think casual people have had more of a pushback against killing him off than Bond fans. I think they've been more accepting from what I've seen than, than the, the general sort of vibe is but that people may fundamentally disagree with what they've seen as experience that's just my experience of it and it's just very bad anecdotal as i say i think they've been partly bond fans have been taken in a bit with this is a bold new retelling of james bond you know we're not going to do it like we used to so they're they're kind they are kind of expecting the unexpected it's the 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 usual (laughs) thing like you've just said it's more it'd be more weird if it was just a normal ending Mm -hmm. and in cinema standards they were also the marketing where they clearly built it up as a bit like the the rise of Skywalker, didn't they? This is your last chance to see Daniel Craig as James Bond. All of it has been leading to this, so it's got to have to be weighty and emotional. And I've, I keep boring everyone with this as well. Casino Royale and Quantum, they didn't sell them on as emotional films. They were emotional films, but they sold them as gritty and realistic. I, I don't think you could call this very realistic. This film, you know, there's, it's it's gone completely away from that. But it's got more and more emotional. It's play, it's now playing on that far more than we want a Bond who we think can get punched. That was the whole selling point of Craig. But we've that's gone now. That no one ever mm. mentions that anymore. Yes, yeah. 
yeah. we want a bond that cries now almost because it you know if you add up add up his relationships vesper was for a few weeks he was betrayed not a good spy didn't couldn't get over that did get over in quantum but now he's not got over it again and madeline fell in love instantly then got got rid of her for not good enough reasons because of trust issues it's her fault really for not telling him she was pregnant but there's all that we haven't talked about, gosh. And then meeting his kid on one one or two days, and that's why he's dying. I'm not saying, of course, if you've got a kid, it's your kid. That's you know, it doesn't make a difference how long you've known them. But it's just rushed. It's there's too much going on, and I think written in reverse is my main problem with it. But then I go back to what we've said as well for it, for having all that and to create some kind of film that makes sense hmm. narratively at least and excites the audience who weren't bored at all. It's quite, a, it's quite a talented thing to do. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say is that if we do get, in inverted commas, a more normal bond, in 10 years' time, this might be seen as, oh, well, quite, you know, that was a bit more bold than I, than I gave him credit for. Because it's just because you know that there's no planning from film to film there. There's, no, there's nothing. It's chase the actor first and then build the film around that. And his ideas, it's not, like I've said it before, you know, the John Glenn screen testing actors whilst Roger was negotiating his contract because the, the film's already done. The plot's already done. We know what we're going to do in that one. Okay, they, they built it towards, like, Timothy's strengths uh, in Licence to Kill and Pierce's, you know, they, they perhaps they went too far, didn't they, by dying of the day and they needed a change of direction. But to just sort of get themselves in this one film every few years and then we'll think about the next one it's going to happen again i'm afraid spoiler alert I'd, i think the the problem we've got is they've got a 60 year anniversary they'll want to get that marketing with that particularly amazon now how on earth do we sell that by the last film where bond dies we can't so it's going to have to be tune that in with announcing the new bond i think so i think that's so that's another delay before we even find out who bond is but I think, well I, well, I, for one, will be feeling far more positive then so that I can sort of close the chapter on this, see it for the strengths, like Stephen's been saying. There are loads of strengths in the five-film arc and then get excited of whoever's Bond and whoever it is, if I don't on paper like them, no, give them a chance because we've done that before. You know, mm. Give whoever is the next Bond a chance and give the, the directors, the writers, the producers... Don't know whether Barbara's going to still be around, but yeah, I think judging it now, it's still raw. It's so weird to talk about this way about Bond film, isn't it? Mm. Like I mean, the only big twist we've had up until now is Electra was a baddie. Yeah. Every, all the other twists are in the books. I mean, we, we're at a bit of a advantage in terms of that this is the first... I mean, I know Stephen's already talked about the Brosnan era, and that, that's fair. But for me, I can't talk for myself, really. Uh, my first film I watched at the cinema was World of Time North. We're, this is our first era where we're living through it. We have the advantage of social media, so you, you hear that you hear our thoughts a lot. We don't know really what the public perception and discussion was towards the eight in the eighties of Roger Moore's era, or or after Diamonds Are Forever. We can look at it back retrospectively and appreciate it for what it is. But as I've said many times before, if I went to the cinema in uh, in nineteen 
69, I hope that's the right year, uh, watched Majesty's Secret Service. And then I went to the cinema to watch Diamonds Are Forever straight after. I would yeah. be absolutely furious because I'd be like, I want to know how Bond gets his revenge. That would that'd be, that'd be my personal thing. Now, because I wasn't at that time, I can sit back now, watch it from the comfort of my home and appreciate both films for what they are. We're, we're right in the middle of this. We're very emotionally involved. And we are also, we've got social media so we can see everybody else's point of view as well. And sometimes with these eras, it's what you see in 10, 15 years' time where people can step back. So they're out of that emotion. They can see it for what it is. And maybe I might have a different perspective there. In fact, I really hope I do because I feel like I've gone in two-footed and I didn't want to, actually. I wanted to share my point of view, but I wanted to also appreciate it for what it is because there's a lot of good stuff about this era. I'm not someone who's completely against it. It just seems very raw at this moment in time, and this is the forum to share it. I think the time delays and the years between make everything worse, like we touched on earlier, because now, like tomorrow afternoon, if I sit down and watch, um, say, You Only Live Twice, which I like a lot, but then mm. say I will watch that, and at the end of it, I think, oh, Christ, it's a bit silly towards the end. I feel like someone a bit more down to earth. Then I could just pop License to Kill straight on, or, yeah. you know, or vice versa. But what you're saying now is, if we go to the cinema now and you see No Time to Die and you think, well, this is just not for me, you you, you can go and pop on an old film, but you're waiting years for the next one. If, if, true. If you if you want an antidote to it, you have a long time to wait and it, things fester. A th- big thing that's played against this era is the big delay was after Spectre, mm. a film which, even though, Tom, you said you like Spectre and Spectre's grown on me a lot over the years, but I think if there had been a big delay after Skyfall, I think... The, the sort of perception against, uh, well, for this era would be very different because you like or dislike Skyfall, it's a very popular film. It was a triumphant film. Mainstream audiences loved Skyfall and it's a very popular film against with Bond fans. So sometimes it, it really depends on what the delay comes after because that colours, it's like you're, you're only as good as your last game sort of thing. So I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say here, but with them, um, with in the 90s, the delay after License to Kill, I'm old enough to remember that. I'm not just seeing it now because I'm in a sort of safe Dalton space, but I always loved Timothy Dalton's Bond. But when I was growing up, the perception with Bond fans was Connery's Bond, Moore was a pretender, Dalton's just not really much. Nobody even talked about Lazenby back then. And it was only as time shifted, it was like, no, Roger's actually quite good and his films aren't just you know comedies and there's more to them. And then it was... Well, Majesty's is worth a look, and hold on, this Dalton guy is actually you know better than people give him credit for. So it's fascinating to watch how times change mm. for the better and for the worse because things get reevaluated, but then things get forgotten, and I, it does make me sad when I watch the Connery era almost getting forgotten or getting just not talked about too much. But then that's maybe because I grew up with that. Maybe maybe to certain Bond fans, it's just not all that. Maybe it's maybe it's they're too far removed from it, and maybe that'll happen with Roger, and then we'll all be sad. I've said this before as well, but people always forget that Automatics was a big success. People say it was a disaster; it wasn't. But when Diamonds Are Forever came out, it was mm. a massive success. Absolutely, it was way more popular. People were like, obviously, part of that was because Sean's back, but people love preferred at the time that sort of silly, more campy, more fantastical. I, I mean, I love it for its own reasons, but yeah. 
that was the tastes of the early 70s. I think it was, um, what's his name, Mark, Mark Gatiss who said, on the Madison's it was that perfect 69, it had to be then. If it was earlier, it, it would have just been another 60s film and it, it isn't a 70s film, it's like that magical era, era of in-between exists in that sort of world between the swinging 60s and this new wave of 70s. And to go from that to the other, to think about, you know, other people have done a lot of these watch-alongs or they've watched all the Bonds in order before No Time to Die's come out. Yeah, it's it must be so weird. If you had never seen any of these films before, mm. it was getting a bit more fantastical then. Down to Earth, Honor Majesty's is very much in with today's audience's expectations. It's what a modern audience would expect of a film there. And then to go to Diamonds Are Forever, which is nothing like, uh, you know, a, a cinema blockbuster at all today. But until... I don't know. Probably the probably the mid nineties. Diamonds Are Forever was arguably one of the most popular Bond films. It was mm. like the record num- when it got its premiere on ITV. It's like the bigger than the World Cup final, or you know, absolutely enormous popularity. And it's only sort of as Bond fans and sort of general fans have sort of revisited and said, "Oh, hang on, that's a bit silly," because it's nothing like the the current Bond. But like with even with that though, it's getting a bit of a renaissance, isn't it? I've, I see loads of people who who love Diamonds Are Forever. It's the funniest Bond film. It is. It is. Yeah. I, I, it's so weird. It's it's a horror. It's a comedy. It's it, I loved it. Outstanding it's, dialogue. The dialogue. It is. is yeah. It is. Yeah. 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 Very much agree with what you're saying there. In that, totally believe that the renaissance that Majesty's is having is, as you say, entirely or at least largely based around the fact it, it, it ties with what current sort of mm. cinema trends are, and they will change again, like they changed in the early 2000s with sort of your post-9-11 um, Batman Begins way of making cinema, which is kind of largely still persisting, even though a lot you could argue a lot of sort of Marvel films are against that, and a lot of other mainstream films are against that, and your Fast and Furious films are against that. But it will change again. It, it Cinema changes constantly, even though the larger trends are kind of over larger troughs of time, and it will change. And I'm always I'm curious as to whether Majesty will fall back again in, in, in years to come. I don't think so. I, I think it's probably it's probably going to be there to stay, rightfully so, even though like I say I, I have issues with it. It's not like my favorite films, but it's, it's, it's in very much in the top half. I would say it's only because I prefer sort of the more... Um, light-hearted escapist ones is the only thing that keeps out of the top 10. It's 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 my second overall for sort of directorial technical competence, I would say. But it's it's interesting that like I said it, it it how how much things change. Like Goldfinger is another one which seems to me to be on a endless roller coaster between being one of the highest ever rated and being like, oh well, this is absolute crap. And it, yeah. it's it's funny how diamonds like you say definitely went on that sort of journey and I I hope that it kind of people love it again is is a more lighthearted like not every Bond film has to be super serious. You can be a good Bond film while also being more lighthearted. I think that and sort of Moonraker proves that really. Like there's like it's such an open ended series and so many more things you can do. No matter knock the Craig era for one thing, it's maybe sticking to the Casino Royale serious script mm. a bit much although they did they did try and get away from it in the last three films of Bear Witch. Yeah, yeah. I can't knock them on on not trying. But when you look at how much 
Conry's era changed and Moore's era changed and even Brosnan's era. I mean, to me, Goldeneye and Down of the Day feel like totally like I mean, it's it's insane that they were seven years apart. <laughs> Craig's era, for for better or worse, has much more of a of a sort of to me at least. Maybe in twenty years' time, I look back and think, bloody hell, how was Kinnarayal no time to die in the same same era? I don't know. Maybe it's a proximity thing. Mm. But yeah, it's 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 amazing. I think how much these films are reevaluated over time. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I agree. But it's put put pressure on them every time they change it to do something new, isn't it? I mean, they don't have they don't have to do something new. They can try and do a bit of the classics, which they sort of did with Golden, I suppose. Even with Living Daylights to an extent, is it the more the pressure to back, go in line with previous Bond films, or there's a pressure to go in line with modern cinema, and that's the sort of direction they've been leaning to more? recently even though i know they have followed trends or slightly throughout the whole every decade of bond films but you just realize don't you how much variety and incredible legacy there is of this series and Mm. for better or for worse no time to die is going to leave a massive legacy for itself not not hopefully just as the one is that the one where bond died (laughs) i hope there's a bit more to it than that and the context and I, i agree tom when we find out the script, how that was all put together, if we ever do, that'll be an incredible book in itself, I think. <laughs> so we look forward yeah. to finding all this out. We look forward to, I'm looking forward to watching it on at home and just relaxing with it a bit more. The debate will continue in, in future episodes, but thank you guys for, for joining me tonight. I've loved hearing everyone's varied and brilliant points I think everyone's been making tonight, and it's, it's great to just have Bond fans chatting. Love it. Thank, thank you. Much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Good lads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.